Our second reading is from Mark chapter 12. And this is a scene in the Gospels where Jesus has just been teaching about the scribes and Pharisees who were the religious people of the day. And they uh, would always draw attention to themselves in an ostentatious manner. And Jesus, in contrast to them who had long prayers, gave their offerings in an ostentatious way, Jesus then, keeping that in his mind, he saw someone who was very different. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I pray and bring the message, I just want to say a personal word of how wonderful it is to be back in the great state of Texas. And it is... It is a particular joy to be back in Texas when the Texas Longhorns won a football game yesterday. Woohoo! Hook 'em horns. And I want to say a word. I've been to Westlake Hills before with uh, friends of mine. Gary Dennis is one of my dearest friends, and I've been here many times with Gary and with Doug Fletcher. But it's a particular joy today to be here when uh, Mark Ramsey is your pastor. He is one of the finest pastors in America, I think, and he teaches and preaches for our Macedonian program that I have worked with with pastors all over America. We've sent him to Montana, we've sent him to Iowa, and he teaches and preaches for us. And Mark, it's a great honor to be in your congregation and to see Stacy again, who grew up at Memorial Drive. And I also want to acknowledge there are many people today uh, including Bob Ball, who was one of my predecessors at uh, Memorial Drive, who came to church today. And it means a great deal to me to see all of you MDPCers. So it's great to be home in Texas. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we didn't come to hear a human word or a human voice or a human opinion. We came to hear your word and your voice. So to that end, pour through me, please, the gift of preaching that these words would not simply be my words or my opinions, but in a magical, miracle way, these words might become the living word from you to this congregation. And we know they will, O oh God, for we pray with anticipation in the strong name of Jesus Christ, and may all God's people say amen. Is there anyone here, would you raise your hand, who's ever been to Mo Ranch in the hill country of Texas? Well, years ago, I led a retreat for Westlake Hills at Mo Ranch, and there was a little boy who went to camp at Mo Ranch, and he was there for the week, and he loved everything about it. He loved the water slide, he loved rafting on the river, he loved the whole thing, the marsh roasting marshmallows over the fire at night. But the one thing he did not like was chapel every day. And what he did was to make it not so boring, he would look at the saints 
uh, who were in the windows. He'd look at these figures in the windows and see the light shining through them, and they were, they were dancing. The sun would be dancing through these saints in the windows. And the little boy didn't know who the saints were, but the chaplain noticed that all the kids were looking at the stained glass windows, so he seized the teachable moment, and he explained to them that people like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Peter and Paul and Moses, that they were, in fact, the saints. So when the parents picked up the little boy, they said, um, uh, what did you learn about God and following Jesus? What did you learn about that? At Mo Ranch, he said, I didn't learn nothing about that, but we had water slides and marshmallows, and the parents were disappointed. But remember, the children don't always tell you everything they learned when parents want to know it. So, a few weeks later, when the mother was teaching a Sunday school class on the saints, she was saying to her husband, I want to find a metaphor, a way to make the saints alive for these children. And the little boy piped up, oh, mommy, I know all about the saints. She said, where did you learn about the saints? He said, I learned about them in Mo Ranch. He, and then remembering the light that was dancing through the window, he made this profound statement, not even aware how profound it was. He said, oh, the saints, they're the people who the light shine through. Now let that lean against you a little bit. The saints are the people who the light shine through. This Tuesday, November 1st, is All Saints Day. It's a day when after All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, when we cast out all the, the demons and the ghosts and the goblins, we remember and we lift up the saints. Saints are people who the light shine through. Jesus was sitting opposite the temple treasury, and he saw the light shining through this poor widow who came to offer her gift. Now listen, the, in the, the temple treasury, there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles. Wealthy people and people like the scribes would go and put their coins in these trumpet-shaped receptacles in an ostentatious manner. Clang, 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 and all these coins would clang against the trumpet-shaped receptacle. I wonder if that's what Jesus had in mind when Stacy just read in Matthew 6, when you give your alms, sound no trumpet before you. I wonder if that's what Jesus had in mind. Don't give in an ostentatious manner. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But this poor widow comes and offers two small copper coins worth one penny. Lepton, meaning the thin one. It was the simplest of all coins. It took 128 of them to make one day's wage. And Jesus saw the light shining through this woman. I see this poor widow as a woman named Mrs. Cellophane. Did any of you ever see the play Chicago? It's a musical on Broadway. It's the second longest running show on Broadway after Phantom of the Opera. But so many people have seen this. But in the Chicago, you almost don't remember it. There's a man named Mr. Cellophane. And Mr. Cellophane is one of those nameless, faceless people in Chicago. We have them in Austin. They were there in Jerusalem. And they're the poor, the homeless, the broken. Nobody notices them, really. And, and Mr. Cellophane comes onto the stage and he says, people see right through me, they walk right by me, and then he says, they don't know my name, and then he slinks off the stage, there's not even any exit music, and then before he leaves the stage, he says, I hope I didn't take too much of your time. There are people like that in Austin, Texas, and in New Jersey, 
and in Jerusalem. They're nameless, faceless, poor people. I wonder if something God wants for Westlake Hills and Austin is to spend more time opening our eyes to see the poor who are right around us, poor of spirit and poor financially. Anyway, Jesus noticed this poor woman, and when she put in her coins into that trumpet-shaped receptacle, Jesus noticed through Miss Cellophane, he saw the light shining through her, and there were two things that he noticed about her. And as you make your dedication next Sunday to the work of Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church and the kingdom of God through Westlake Hills, I want you to keep these two things in mind. Jesus noticed two things about this woman, Mrs. Cellophane. He noticed the spirit in which she gave, and he noticed the sacrifice with which she gave. When I say he noticed the spirit in which she gave, Jesus noticed that she gave humbly. She gave joyfully. She didn't call great attention to herself. She put in these two simple copper coins very humbly, but there was a joy about her, a radiance. He saw the light shining through her. She was really in it when she gave the gift. I knew a little five-year-old girl, and she wanted to get her daddy's attention, and she wanted a good night hug and kiss, so she came and stood beside him, and she was standing there for five minutes, and he didn't even notice her, and finally he was typing away, typing away, typing away on his big important report for the office, and finally he looked and said, honey, you startled daddy, what do you want? She said, well, mommy said if I came and stood here, you'd give me a good night hug and kiss. Okay, he said. I, he leans over, gives her the, the obligatory peck on the cheek and a little, a little hug, half a hug, and says, now go, 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 go. You got to go. Daddy's got his important work. Go to bed, go to bed. See you tomorrow. And he's back to his important work. And five or ten more minutes go by. He doesn't even notice that the girl never left. She's still standing there. And finally, now this time, the dad is mad. And he said, I gave you the hug and kiss. Now what more do you want? She said, Daddy, you did give the hug and kiss, but you weren't in it. You know, you can give somebody a hug and kiss and not be in it. You can put money in the offering plate and not be in it. You can sing a beautiful praise chorus or a song, a hymn, and not be in it. You can serve as an elder. You can teach Sunday school and not be in it. But when you're in it, it makes all the difference in the world. Next Sunday, when you dedicate your pledge to Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church, I hope you're in it, because that's the spirit of Mrs. Cellophane. When she gave, she was in it. Joe was in it when he gave. I met Joe as a homeless guy at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York. I was pastor there for 12 years, and I met Joe as a homeless man on our steps, and we go out to meet the homeless people on our steps sleeping there, and we got to know their name, and they got to know our name. And I was always trying to get them to call me Tom, but he always wanted to call me Doc or, or Reverend, or sometimes he called me Father. He didn't know what to call me. I said, call me Tom, but he couldn't do it. I was giving out Bibles to the homeless one day, and, um, and Joe, uh, I gave Joe a Bible and said, here, Joe, I want you to read this. And he said, is this a Bible? I said, yeah. He said, oh, I've already read the Bible. I don't want another Bible. I don't ever want to read the Bible again. I said, well, why not? He said, because I've read the Bible and all the Bible has in it are perfect, perfect people. Stories of these perfect people, they never make any mistakes, they never do anything wrong. I'm sick and tired of reading about perfect people. Well, that's when I knew Joe had never read the Bible, so I, I got him, 
I got him a, uh, a, a, a drug addict's, alcoholic's Bible, a Bible for 12 steppers, and it didn't really look like a Bible. And I said, Joe, I want you to read this. And he said, where should I start? I said, start with the first book, Genesis. It means beginnings. I think you'll like it. So he read Genesis, and I knew he'd read it because he came up to me and he said, hey, Doc, this is the greatest thing I ever read in my life. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, these are stories about murderers, liars, adulterers, thieves. These are my kind of people. Joe started to soften toward God. And I knew that because one night when I was serving communion at Fifth Avenue Church, you know how people come forward for intinction and they take a little bit of the bread and a little bit of the juice, and I was holding a big loaf of bread, and Joe came by me, and he kind of got cold feet as he got close to me. So when he got up for communion, he said to me, skip me, skip me. I said, why should I skip you? He said, skip me. I said, why should I skip you? He said, God's got a list of sins I've committed a mile long. I said, God's got a list of sins I've committed a mile long too. He said, you don't know how bad I've been. I said, you don't know how bad I've been. I said, Joe, what if God, and I had this big loaf of bread, I said, Joe, what if God just ripped up both of our lists? What if your sins are forgiven and my sins are forgiven? And Joe, what if I serve you the bread, the body of Christ, and you serve me the body of Christ? He said, Father, is that legal? I said, yes, it is, my son. <laughs> and there at this church in Midtown Manhattan, I served this homeless man, the body of Christ. I said, Joe, the body of Christ was broken for you. And he said to me, Father, the body of Christ was broken for you. There we were two forgiven sinners at the foot of the cross who'd received the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the great part of the story. Joe got a part-time job. He got an apartment. He got a key to his own apartment. He lived on the streets of New York City for 11 years. He was eating out of garbage cans at Rockefeller Center for 11 years. He got his own apartment, his own key, and we gave him $150 in cash for a can opener fund to buy toilet paper and household supplies and, and goods and so forth. The next Sunday in church was our dedication Sunday, like you're going to have next Sunday. And Joe came forward with an envelope, and he handed it to me, and I didn't know what was in it. And so I opened the envelope, thinking it was a note of some kind, and I opened the envelope, and in it were $75 in cash. We'd just given him $150. He gave $75 in cash for the church. I said, Joe, I can't accept this. You can't really afford this. You need to keep this money for yourself. He said, oh, no. After what Jesus has done for me, I owe him my whole life. See, Jesus sees into the heart. That's the same spirit as Mrs. Cellophane, this poor widow who gave, gave this, these two copper coins. Joe gave in that same spirit. He didn't consider giving out of his scarcity. He didn't realize he had so little. He gave out of the abundance of God's grace. And that's what he focused on when he gave. Next week when you give your gift, I hope you will not give out of scarcity. What can I afford I hope you'll give in response to God's grace and the abundance of God in Jesus Christ. So the first thing Jesus noticed about this woman, Mrs. Cellophane, and Joe, is that they both had a great spirit. It was the spirit of joy and freedom and abandon in which they gave. I hope you'll give in that spirit next week. I hope you'll be in it. But the second thing that, that Jesus noticed about this woman, Mrs. Cellophane, was her sacrifice. She gave 
two copper coins, one penny, 128 copper coins was a day's wage. So this is actually, in many ways, a very small gift. But Jesus saw the sacrifice, the proportion. He knew that this woman didn't have much money, and she gave everything she, gave everything she had. And I think when Jesus saw this, this occurs in Mark chapter 12 during the last week of Jesus' life. I think he saw this woman as kind of a Christ figure, as kind of an example of himself. In other words, he's going to be asked by, by his father to give his whole life on the cross in a few days. And I think he saw in this woman a glimpse of what he's going to be asked to do. And I think he was inspired by her. And he loved her. He, he saw the light shine through her. You know, Sam Houston was the governor of the state of Texas and the governor of the state of Tennessee, the only man to be governor of two states and impeached as governor of two states. He was impeached as governor because he was a gambler and he was a womanizer and an embezzler and a drunkard and, and chewed too much tobacco. And they finally embezzled him for, for moral depravity and so forth. And later in his life, Sam was... Re reformed and had an experience with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and the Baptist preacher took him to the river to be baptized and he took Sam to the river and he said now Sam I tell you everything you've ever done when you're dunked under the water all of your sins are going to come out into the water and when I raise you up out of the water you're going to have a new life in Jesus Christ Sam bowed his head and started praying and the Baptist preacher said Sam what are you doing he said I'm saying a prayer for the people downstream then the Baptist preacher said, and Sam, take your wallet out of your pocket because it's going to get wet and you give it to somebody on the shore. And Sam Houston said, nothing doing. If I'm going to be baptized, I want my wallet baptized too. Let that lean against you a little bit. Is there anybody here who needs your wallet baptized? It's the spirit in which you give. It's not the amount, it's the spirit, but it's also the sacrifice in 1 Samuel 16, the king Saul isn't doing very well, and Samuel is sent by God to find and anoint a new king. He goes to Jesse and wants to see all Jesse's sons, and some of them are strong and handsome, but, but God says to Samuel, none of these are the one. And finally, Samuel says to Jesse, well, do you have any more sons? Yes, I got David, a shepherd boy, a small, ruddy character, and they bring David to Samuel, and he anoints David. And then the Bible says, People look at outward appearances, but God sees the heart. God saw the heart of this woman, Mrs. Cellophane. He saw the heart of Joe. He saw really the heart of Sam Houston, who wanted his wallet baptized too. And he saw not only the spirit, but he saw the sacrifice. He saw the sacrifice of what people were willing to do in response to his grace. I saw a great example of people whose wallet was baptized in my parents, Carl and Hazel Toole of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I wish you could have known my parents. I grew up as an only child, and some of the folks from Memorial Drive met my mom and dad, but they were wonderful people. My parents lived by an old principle. You, you save 10%, you give 10% to the work of the kingdom, and you live on 80%. It's an old-fashioned principle, but I wish our world today operated more on that instead of living in such debt. My parents always tithed to the kingdom of God through the church. So when my mother died, it was hard for me because I was an only child, but then my father died, and that was very, very hard for me. My dad left me three books. 
One book was all the financial commitments that he had, like his CDs, his insurance. He didn't have a lot of money, but he left. He wanted me to know everything that he had. The second book was called Current. It was about uh, all their possessions. He listed every piece of furniture he and my mother had. He listed all of his clothing that he had and what I could do to get rid of it so it wouldn't take time away from my ministry and my family. What a loving thought. So my dad lists all the things that he had. And then the third book was called Current, and it was about uh, what his current bills were, what he was currently working on, his checkbook and so forth. Tucked away in the back of the third book was a letter to me, my wife Suzanne, who's here this morning, and our two sons, Ryan and Toby, of how much he loved us, and the reason he did this was to save us time, and he thanked us for the privilege he had to be our dad and granddad. It was such a love note. I kept it. I read it this summer. It's very touching. But then I almost didn't notice what was tucked away behind the letter. It was just a little envelope, and I almost missed it. But tucked away in the back of that third book was a, a check. And it was the last check my father ever wrote. He died in July of the year he died. And when my dad died in July, he had written a check, the last check he ever wrote to Southminster Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, PA, his home church, to pay off his entire pledge for the entire year. And he wanted me to hand deliver it because he wanted to make sure that the church got it. It was a sacrificial gift my dad gave. It was a tithe, even more than a tithe, actually. But it was a sacrificial gift. But don't you see, God saw the heart of a good man who wanted to make sure that the whole commitment was made for the whole year, and he wanted to make sure that it was all paid off in response to God's grace in his life. Next week, when you make your commitment... I hope you're in it. I hope the light of Jesus Christ will shine through you as you make the commitment. I hope that when you give, that you will give, it will be the spirit in which you give. You won't focus on the amount, but the spirit. And I hope you give sacrificially in response to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. I close with this thought that Years ago, there's a man, you all know his name anyway, his name is Andrew Young, and he was the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, and Andrew Young was also ambassador to the United Nations from the United States, but Andrew Young, when, when he went to hear Millard Fuller uh, preach one night on Habitat for Humanity, and Millard Fuller, the president of Habitat, was asking people to put a roof over the home of every person in the world, and he said, tonight our offering is going to focus on Uganda. We are going to build habitat homes in Uganda, and we're going to put a roof over the head of every person in Uganda. Will you finance it with me, and will you go? And he looked out. There were many young people in that congregation that night, and he said, I want many of you young people to go with me and build the habitat homes, because we need to put a safe, affordable roof over the home of everybody in the world. And during his talk, Andrew Young's daughter leans over to him and whispers, Daddy, I want to go to Uganda with Dr. Fuller and build the Habitat Homes. Andrew Young said, honey, I'm going to write Dr. Fuller a big check 
and we are going to take care of that, and you're going to finish college, and you're needed right here in Atlanta, Georgia. She said, Daddy, I really want to go. He said, Dr. Fuller's preaching. Listen to what he has to say. So Dr. Fuller finishes his message, and at the end of the service, Andrew Young writes the big check and hands it to Millard Fuller, and they congratulate him on a great sermon. And the daughter comes up and says, Dr. Fuller, I want my dad to let me go with you to Uganda. I want to build homes for the poor. He says, Andrew, great message. Thanks very much. He's pulling his daughter over here. She said, Daddy, I, I've heard you give a lot of sermons about caring for the poor. I've, I've heard you give a lot of sermons about, about giving your life to Jesus and in response to what God's done for us. We're to, we're to give our whole life. I thought you'd be proud of me. I thought you'd be pleased. He said, no, honey, I was just preaching. I didn't mean you. I didn't mean that you ought to do this. And she said, Daddy, please. He said, graduate from college and we'll pray about it. The girl graduated from college, he prayed about it, and Andrew Young and his wife let their daughter go. Well, you know, you can't hang on to these kids forever. We don't own them. They're not ours. They're God's entrusted to us for a few years. So they let her go. Drove her to Hartsfield Airport in Atlanta. They get out of the car. Andrew Young's wife gives her a hug and kiss, and they were in the hug and kiss, and Andrew gave her a hug and kiss, and he was in the hug and kiss, and when the daughter said goodbye and waved goodbye and went down to security, big tears are streaming down Andrew's cheeks. His wife said, Andrew, this is really hard for you, isn't it? She, he said, oh, it is very hard to let her go, but that's not why I'm crying. She said, well, then why are you crying? <sighs> he said, I just got in touch with the fact that we spent our whole lives trying to raise our daughter to be a respectable Christian. I, at least, was not prepared for her to become a real one. Austin, Texas, is desperate to see real Christians, not respectable Christians. The world is sick and tired of respectable Christianity. They want to see real Christians, like Mrs. Cellophane, like Joe, like my mom and dad, Hazel and Carl Toole, and, and like Andrew Young's daughter, because they're the saints. They're the people who the light shine through. Are we 